Welcome to Lexis, the podcast all about language and linguistics. I'm Lisa Casey. I'm Jackie Glancy. I'm Dan Clayton. And I'm Jill Lavender. Welcome to this rather unusual episode of Lexis. Unusual because rather than something that we'd sort of planned way in advance, this was born out of a Twitter conversation that we had on the Lexis podcast Twitter, where teachers of A-level English language were voicing their frustrations about why on earth their students seem to keep coming back when they talk about gender to Robin Lakov. Uh, often they felt to the detriment of other more recent gender theorists and them really kind of wondering out loud whether it was the way that they were approaching the teaching of it, whether there was something about the ideas in Lakov that seemed to be particularly sort of sticky for students, but generally underpinned by a sense of frustration about what they felt was an over-reliance on Lakov's ideas. So uh, a number of academics kind of got in touch to to kind of offer various bits of support for us. And we decided to make a, a specific dedicated episode to talking about this. And we're really delighted to have a, an extra special guest with us today to help us talk about the issues around it. Yeah, so very pleased to introduce uh, Professor Deborah Cameron, Professor in Language and Communication at Worcester College, Oxford University, and author of The Myth of Mars and Venus, editor of the Language and Sexuality Reader, and also author of Verbal Hygiene, which I'm sure many students and teachers will have come across, and is working on or has finished a forthcoming book called Language, Sexism and Misogyny, which is coming out hopefully in December of this year with Routledge. So thanks very much for joining us, Deborah. Really pleased you could join us on the show. It's a pleasure. So to start off, Deborah, Robin Lakoff's Language and Woman's Place is often referred to on A-level language courses and often linked to a deficit model of women's language. So how would you summarise the ideas about women's language and the language used about women in this publication? And importantly, is there still a place on A-level language for Lakoff? Okay, well, before I summarize it, I think it's really important to know two pieces of background information about it. One is simply that this year is the 50th anniversary of its publication. So <laughs> the original version of it, which appeared in a linguistics journal, Language in Society, which is still one of the leading journals in sociolinguistics, it was written, it was published there in 1973. <laughs> so a long time ago, and during the kind of the peak period of the women's liberation movement, or what we now know as second wave feminism. And she was writing for an audience of other linguists. And she was essentially saying, hey, folks, here's a thing that you haven't really talked about as much as you might. And here's some ideas about how we might bring it into consideration. So I think you have to know that it was written a long time ago in a very particular context. And I also think you have to know who she was writing for to kind of make sense of what she said. Mm -hmm. The other important piece of, of background information is that she didn't do what we would now think of as extensive empirical research. Mm -hmm. So I think one thing that really goes wrong when students refer to Lakoff in a in a kind of, you know, not very informed way is that they imagine it as some huge study that found all these differences between men's speech and women's speech. Whereas in fact, she says that what she did was consult her own intuitions, mm -hmm. her observations of her own social milieu, 
she says quite explicitly that this was basically you know white educated middle class women like herself Mm -hmm. and she also used the media things like you know the way that women talked or were talked about in advertising tv advertising so she made no claim to have loads and loads of data about how women actually talked uh, or indeed were talked about. She didn't have access to some of the methods we would use today, like the use of large computerized corpora. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of a brainstorming sort of a, an article, really. Um, and she says, I've actually, I actually spent a little time rereading it just this morning, and I'll give you a quote where she actually explains the purpose of it. This is an attempt to provide diagnostic evidence from language use for one type of inequity that has been claimed to exist in our society, that between the roles of men and women. And she goes on to say that women experience linguistic discrimination in two ways, the way they are taught to use language and the way general language use treats them. Both tend to relegate women to certain subservient functions. Mm -hmm. And then she goes on to divide it into two parts. One is called talking like a lady, and it's about the way she says women are brought up or girls are brought up to speak in a way that's, you know, women's language, which is kind of lacking in force and directness and has all these features that that, you know, A-level students and some of my own students, undergraduate students would sometimes talk about like, Mm. you know, sort of colour terms, sort of weak swear words, empty adjectives like adorable and lovely, sort of tag questions. She has the impression, she says, that, that, that women use them far more than men, rising intonation. So all this catalogue of the mm. of the familiar women's language features. And then the other part of the essay, actually a longer part than the than the women's language part, is about the way women are talked about. Mm. Um, and she talks about the use of euphemisms like lady rather than woman. Mm. She talks about non-parallel pairs of words like mm. master and mistress. You know, master is someone who commands and a mistress is, you know, your your illicit bit on the side. Or side so, chick, se- as my as my students prefer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sexualizing. <laughs> so women being defined by their relationships with men. So she said she says that sentences like John and Mary is John's widow are much more common than John is Mary's widower. Mm. And things like spinster and bachelor, man and wife titles the miss missus thing so she talks about all that and then there's a a conclusion which is really for the linguist audience where she says she's not in any way kind of warfian she says that that language is really a clue to things that are wrong in the real world Mm -hmm. and that you have to change society not just words but she's also very keen that linguists should bring sort of social knowledge into their descriptions of language. And Mm. she's writing in the context of, it's just been the kind of Chomsky revolution where linguists did start sitting in their armchairs and consulting their own intuitions about grammar and trying to make hard and fast generative rules. And Lakoff was part of a kind of counter movement along with her then husband, George Lakoff, which was, uh, it was called generative semantics. And it was about, well, we need to bring meaning and social stuff into grammar as well. 
So there's a whole part of language and women's place that's actually about that. And then there's an editorial comment after it where the editor of Language and Society says, oh, you know, Lakoff has brought up this really interesting and important problem of our times and we need more research. We need more mm-hmm. research on men. We need more comparative research on different mm-hmm. languages and, and cultures. So it it really was a thing that was written and received as a kind of starting point for an investigation of language and gender, rather than as this cut and dried thing that students often seem to think it it is. Mm-hmm. And you know, I would the the original version is less than thirty pages long. Mm-hmm. So actually, if teachers are going to work with this text, I I do quite strongly recommend that they read it. It's 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 fairly accessible, although written in an academic style. It's not long. And it's pretty clear, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I think would dispel some of the weird myths that have or misconceptions that have grown up around it. I do think Lakoff gets quite a bad rap. The part that's about the way women are talked about, which I go back to all these questions in the book that I've written that will be coming out later this year about sexism and misogyny. I think Lakoff is still very much on the money. Mm-hmm. In the talking like a lady bit about the supposed differences between men and women, she isn't so on the money. And she sort of knew that. She knew that she was just throwing out suggestions and she says, I have the impression that, you know, I think if we examined this, we would find. And she does call on people to do the research, which, of course, they subsequently have. But I think she gets a bad rap, you know, through the connection with the deficit model because it wasn't really Lakoff who made it into a deficit model. I read out what she thought she was doing, and she said she was providing evidence of discrimination, of women being treated and socialised in a particular way. And furthermore, one of the ways in which it's been made into a deficit model is through the sort of self-help industry for working women who says, mm. you know, you're doing yourself down at work by yeah. using all these tag questions or or whatever. Mm. You know, that wasn't Lakoff at all. And mm. in fact, it goes against one of the other observations she makes where she says that most women learn to switch to neutral language in appropriate situations. She was never saying that they would talk like that at work or in a job interview or in college, you know, in in educational context. She didn't oppose women's language to men's language. She opposed it to neutral language. She said there was this special register that women were encouraged to use, but didn't. But they were bilingual. They they Mm -hmm. were able to use, you know, not women's language as well, which kind of cuts out many of the arguments that underpin the deficit model that that people made out of it. And she does also kind of talk, I don't think she uses the term itself, but she kind of suggests there's a sort of double bind for women, doesn't she? Yes, that you can, you can, you know, use neutral language and be considered, you know, not feminine enough not, or not ladylike and polite no. enough, or you can use women's language and you'll be considered, you know, in, incompetent, not serious, frivolous, a sex object. So mm-hmm. yes, you, um, you were damned if you do and damned if you don't. Yeah. Do we do we think it's a case then? As I know that you've talked about before, and in your book with Sylvia Shaw, I remember reading about this as one of your discussion points about kind of reporting on women's speech. Is mm-hmm. that it's the reporting of Lakov's research that suggests she's operating in the deficit model rather than the the research itself? 
Yeah, I think she may and she may have slightly inclined towards the belief that women's language was not only symbolically but in some ways actually inferior because of it lacking directness and force for certain contexts anyway. Mm -hmm. But she's also kind of aware of that. So she says at one point that back in 1973 one could see that that women were picking up, you know, roles that were more associated with men but the reverse wasn't yeah. happening. So mm -hmm. women wanted to be, you know, professionals of various kinds, but men were not queuing up to be housewives and secretaries. And she said, this is always the case. It's always the, you know, the, the behavior and the roles of the powerful that the powerless emulate and not the other way around. Whereas one criticism that could be made of some of the things she said is, you know, what's wrong with being polite? Yeah. <laughs> or, <laughs> <laughs> or being indirect those things have you know functional uses and perhaps I mean whenever I hear this thing about women over apologizing I think well hmm, couldn't it be the case that men under apologize yeah. <laughs> but it's never thought of in in that way where men sort of set the standard so she I mean I think it's you know more complicated what she had to say was more complicated than the rather simplistic version that it often gets reduced to and more interesting. Whether it still has a place in A-level English, I mean, I think that that really depends on what A-level English, what the syllabus is trying to do mm. with language and gender. I mean, it, is it really about kind of um, presenting cutting-edge research on what the facts of the matter are because if that's the case, then then I don't really think Lakoff has a place. Why are we still reading a 50-year-old text? Or not reading a 50-year-old text. <laughs> but, but if the idea is also about uh, presenting students with a history of ideas about language and gender, then mm. I think it actually is quite a good, valuable starting point. So long as you treat it as what it is and put it in its context, rather mm. than taking it as this simplistic, decontextualized list of differences. But mm. you do suspect, don't you, that, that that's the reason for its popularity, that it can be reduced to this men do this, women do that yes. kind of list, listicle. It's kind of the mm. BuzzFeed listicle yeah. of language and gender. Yeah. And I think it, it possibly also, it, it's a good starting point um, for students to see whether these things can be quantified and whether you know whether you can you know um go out and, and research whether women do use more tag questions than men and and so as a starting point I think perhaps it's useful there um do you think that Lakoff provided a starting point for other linguists to do that more kind of you know like what's the word I'm looking for the the empirical you know data collection yeah yes yes she she absolutely did and there was lots of um, discussion and, and indeed some counter evidence at the time. I mean, if you take the question of tag questions, mm. a lot of research was um, done on that in the kind of later 70s and then the 1980s. And one of the things that emerged really was that you've got to look at the role someone's playing in a conversation. Essentially, mm -hmm. tag questions, so this is from the work of people like the New Zealand linguist Janet Holmes, mm -hmm. and also me in collaboration mm -hmm. with two of my students who did a, undergraduate students who did a project on this, that tag questions were very um, associated with playing a facilitative role in a mm -hmm. conversation. 
And that role could be associated with, you know, a weak position like, you know, women desperately trying to draw out their husbands who were grumpy old grouches who refused to talk, mm. uh, as found by, for instance, Pamela Fishman, who had married couples recording themselves. But it could also be associated with actually a powerful institutional position. Mm. So one of my students compared you know, used sort of phone-ins where there would be a medical professional talking to callers or a legal professional talking to callers. And they often used, it It was the person who had the authority who used the tag questions to get the other, you know, to draw out the other's mm -hmm. problem, what it mm -hmm. was. Or, you know, teachers te in university contexts, big users of tag questions. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't necessarily indicate powerlessness but it does seem to go with a certain conversational role or function other women's yeah. language things have been investigated and and it's turned out that Lakoff was right so for instance there's a lot of research on who knows what color terms yeah I mean to me mm. this is one of the most trivial boring things <laughs> on earth I mean <laughs> really cares and um but a but a popular I mean, just... one for the headlines <laughs> But yeah. uh, but most, you know, studies that do it in a really scientific way, you know, on screens with like randomly selected Pantone colours, asking people to name them, do find that women know more non-basic colour terms than men. Although there is at least one study which finds a big difference between younger men and older men. So, oh, you know, so men are more, are more likely to just say that things are, you know, blue or green or bluish green and women will say they're like teal or mm -hmm. you know turquoise but but this seems to be diminishing young men seem to be less bothered by the idea that they might you know maybe buy their own clothes out of catalog <laughs> and know the and no words like that you know um so you can do their own washing <laughs> exactly exactly so, you know, which, which does, I mean, people have taken that up in a really strange way. There are lots of studies which actually begin from the idea that it must be an eight, that this right. difference must be an eight because women are better at perceiving colour. It's the way their brains are wired. But if young men know as many non-basic colour terms as, as women, I think that kind of knocks that one out a bit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting one to maybe come back to in a, in a few minutes, is that sort of idea around where things have gone and some of the different debates around language and gender, and particularly thinking about that sort of idea of essentialism, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You mentioned about the, the colour one. I mean, students seem absolutely obsessed with empty adjectives, and every adjective is an empty adjective as far as language and gender is concerned for students. <laughs> They seem to have completely got the wrong end of the stick with that, or many of them do. I think Lakoff talks about these kind of empty adjectives as being ones that are just broadly, they've, they've got their own kind of semantic meaning, but they broadly sort of terms of approval, aren't they? Yes, I think, so they're things like adorable, divine, lovely. Mm. I mean, I, I would say that some of them are, are sort of, they become part of a style of camp, really. Mm. Who mm. says divine or adorable? I mean, I don't know if they were more said by the people that Lakoff knew in California in 1973. Mm. But I mean, another one that she, she talks about a neutral one being groovy. Yeah. Yes. Groovy <laughs> Wasn't it a groovy, like metal? A groovy steel mill. That's it. Yes. What? I mean, come on. This is clearly not corpus data. 
<laughs> well, exactly. We have now got corpus data yeah. if we want it for that sort of thing. And I don't know what it shows, but I think basically most of the examples for the empty adjective category have, have just been superseded by the passage of time. Yeah. I mean, I mean, adjectives of that that have that function change very rapidly. I mean, they're a, they're a major feature of slang, like you mm. know, wicked, sick, and mm. whatever whatever the kids are saying now, which I'm not even sure what it is. So where did linguistic research go after Lakoff's work then? What were some of the main strands and directions? Well, I mean, a lot of, a lot of people did in, continue to investigate these sort of what you might call discourse features, looking for differences between men and women. That, that went on for a long time. And in disciplines other than sociolinguistics, like psychology, certain mm-hmm. kinds of psychology, it still goes on. You know, you can find hundreds of them coming out all the time or on, you know, SLOS 1, you know, where strangely people like economists kind of do these kinds of studies. I saw one not long ago which said that one of the things that women were doing wrong was they were not they were not being specific enough. They were being too vague. So, you know, the, that unfortunately is a continuing tradition and, you know, very decontextualized and they, they never take any account of, you know, the fact that women and men are not internally homogeneous categories. Yeah. I mean, Lakoff, as I said before, explicitly acknowledged that she was only talking about a certain segment of the female community that she was part of. That was that obviously became another strand of work trying to look at the differences within the group. Mm. So you know whether whether things held for women of different ages, classes, races, sexualities to some extent, um, and and later on, of course, there's there's the whole well variationist third wave trend yeah. where people are looking at the expression of gender identity through small differences in linguistic choice. Not usually meaningful ones, um, more usually sort of pronunciation. That's the, that's the bread and butter of variationist sociolinguistics that people who use, they'll pronounce sounds like vowels or S's yes. differently to signal different gradations of you know gender identity. So that's obviously a tradition that Lakoff had really no hand in and doesn't seem to have been particularly aware of, although it did exist at the same time she was writing in, in its very early incarnation. So Peter Treadgill had already published, LeBove had already published, but she was in the more formal end of, of linguistics and evidently wasn't reading that kind of quantitative, phonology-focused stuff. So, you know, that was a that was a thing. And you know, more awareness of context as well. So things like looking at how, well, how are tag questions or swearing or whatever, how are they related to the kind of conversations people are having and, the, and you know, those kinds of situations in which those take place and the roles that people are playing and so on. And then a bit later on, by the end of the 1980s, you have got the advent of, of corpus methods where you can number crunch your way through really vast samples of authentic language. I mean, they're not completely without their problems. Just because mm. a sample's big doesn't mean it's good mm. <laughs> um, for um, for whatever you you might want to do with it. But there is obviously a lot of, of corpus work that touches on or is about gender and about 
more specific subcultural expressions of gender. So at the moment, people seem to be getting funded a lot to use corpora to study corpus methods to study the language of incels, for example. Yeah, yeah. Some of the Lancaster stuff, man trap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're doing it at Lancaster. There's also a bunch of Italians doing it. Mm. You know, and then the representation of men and women and men and women's language in various different media has become, eventually became a sort of focus of attention. I mean, it was interesting. I'd forgotten that Lakoff herself said that she used her fairly casual, not very systematic observations of advertising Mm. as an input to language and woman's place. And people today study media representations. And of course, they're a very important um, source of stereotypes about how different people speak, not just women and men, but all yeah. kinds of, mm. of people. Um, and, you know, they what the effect of that is on our real behaviour is a live question in linguistics now. So, for instance, you may have you may know that not long ago, Carmen Fort and Karen Eisenhower published a book length study of the representation of male and female speech in Disney and Pixar movies. And that's very revealing. I mean, some of it is really very simple. I mean, one thing they did was just count how much does anybody speak? So in Disney princess films, men tend to get far more of the dialogue than women, even though the heroine is a woman. So Mm. the the idea that men act or speak and women Mm. appear, it continues to be upheld in the Disney princess film, which is, you know, a female-centred genre. And until they crunched the numbers, it doesn't really seem that people in people at Disney were really very aware of that, mm. or people were aware of it at all. So, you, you know, you're taking your daughters to see Frozen, say, which has two princesses in it, but, you know, female characters are only getting 40% of the dialogue. And they also studied, you know, more specific things about what kind of talking the characters do. So things about compliments, apologies, mm. you know, mm. who dominates interchanges between the prince and the princess and, and so on. And it's very interesting sort of why there's the imbalance, because the earliest Disney films, there wasn't. So in Snow White, women get most of it, most mm. of the dialogue. I say women, obviously they're animations. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Representations. They're, they're drawings. Yeah. But and And so people are like, well, how can it have got worse? And the reason is because from The Little Mermaid onwards, Disney adopted a kind of Broadway ensemble cast type of thing. And so you got new characters, speaking characters, singing characters, and they were all male, you know. So they introduced, you know, the sidekick like Mulan's dragon Mushu and and that snowman thing in, in Frozen. It's a bunch Jackie of stick, really, isn't it? And, <laughs> I don't know who that is, sorry. And, Jackie, and do they, you know? get, they get a whole bunch of the dialogue. And then there are all these kind of background characters, like a guard or a shopkeeper. Mm. And the sort of default male assumption just kicks in without anybody noticing. So those are all men. And, they, and so the upshot is that people inhabit a world, a Disney world, where they, kids are learning that it's normal for girls not not to speak as much as boys. Um, and in fact, that's, that's the case across the film industry. There have been lots of number crunches of, of the dialogue in adult feature films. Mm. Yeah, it's truly depressing. 
we do not see equal speaking time represented very much at all. And, you know, that's a, the debate is how much does that affect the way we actually um, talk yeah. or think? In, in <laughs> yeah, it kind of brings us back to, to what Dan was suggesting earlier, is that there seems to be sort of a, a two track that we're on. The, on the one hand, we've got what is presented as general public opinion, that there is something inherent about the way that men or women supposedly use language, and mm. then sort of a linguistic exploration of how far that is true and how far it is just represented in that way. Would that be fair to say? Yes, it would. It would. But then, but I think it would also be fair to say that there must be some kind of a feedback loop. Yeah. That, that the way we see the world represented isn't completely irrelevant to how we think about it and act in it. Yeah, which of course is what Lakov argues at the end in the in the at the end of her, her piece as well. Okay, yes. interesting. Yeah. Yes. And I suppose in, in terms of other directions in which some of the sociolinguistic research went, you definitely had, it seems, some sort of movement towards the idea about gender being discursively constructed. I think Helen Sorensen talks about that in her researching language gender and sexuality book and this idea she talks about a means through which gender and sexuality are actually brought into existence through language so I, I guess is that kind of quite influenced by people like Judith Butler and ideas from from that mm. sort of field yes although um social construction was a thing in feminist scholarship before Judith Butler um yeah. <laughs> uh, but there, there was there was always a debate about what um, part language specifically sort of played in it. I mean, language is obviously very important as a, as a category maker. Naming things and dividing them up is an important <laughs> function that language has. Yeah, uh, I would call myself a social constructionist in that I believe that pretty much all aspects of gender in the traditional sense of sort of social roles and cultural conventions Yeah come out of society rather than being some essence inside yeah. people. That's why they vary so much across cultures and, and mm. through time. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can necessarily de deny kind of material stuff. Like you could, you can look at the way um, babies are spoken to, for example, by their caretakers. If you tell caretakers that a, a strange baby is male or that it's female, they will talk to it differently. We have mm. kind of experimental evidence of, of that kind of thing. And while that behavior is socially constructed, you know, that the child isn't, you know, discursively bringing its identity into existence sure. or whatever. It's partly a question about how much agency do we have, mm. you know, and particularly as individuals or whatever. And I, I would say that the, that the pure Judith Butler version of that goes a bit further than I would. So Lakoff talks about the way that women are taught to use language. I would say, and do say in the Language, Sex and Misogyny book, that I want to reformulate that as the way women's language is policed. Right, okay. You know, and it, so, so in a way that is quite postmodern, that would hark back to somebody like Foucault, but, yeah, but it's not um, a difficult thing to grasp people are rewarded and punished for acting and speaking in particular ways. So you can't necessarily take the fact that they conform to certain norms as evidence that they kind of identify with them in some mm. positive and agentive sense. Yeah. They may be avoiding 
you know, women avoiding taking the lead or whatever, because they know what the that the consequences for them will be negative. So their mm. their friends won't like them, and that you know their bosses won't appreciate it. That kind of thing. You know. So I I guess in that sense I have a, a more traditional sense of what it means for something to be socially constructed. It's in, social construction doesn't just go on in our own bubble. Mm. Yeah. I guess that reminds me a bit of some of the stuff you've written on your blog about, for example, the just say sorry, don't say sorry app and those kind of ones, you know, like you say Mm. about the kind of workplace and women being seen as bossy if they take the lead Mm. and that Mm. sort of policing. Yeah, or in classrooms too. I mean, uh, Judith Baxter's work showed that very clearly. Some boys, certain boys could get into a position of kind of influence and leadership because they were supported by other boys. They had sidekicks mm-hmm. to repeat their points, laugh at their jokes, you know, all that kind of thing. And there were girls who wanted to behave like that, but they didn't get the support of other girls. Girls would say, she's too bossy, she was trying to take the lead, we didn't appreciate that. Girls are supposed to be, you know, cooperative and egalitarian or whatever, and not to be tall poppies, whereas some boys can get away with it. And, you know, that's that has been found in quite a lot of settings okay so if we'd if we'd like to encourage students to by all means accept that Lakov is more nuanced than perhaps it's been presented initially to them but we do want them to look beyond Lakov into into some more recent work on gender interaction the various things that we've talked about today what three linguists or three bits of research do you think teachers should include in their a-level teaching about gender Oh, that's that's a hard question. It's horrible. Really, I um, apologize for it. Yes, it's horrible. <laughs> well, I I think one thing they might find it interesting to include is the work that I mentioned about the Disney films. So Carmen Fort and Karen Eisenhower's work. They've written a book, but I think they they also have written it even for newspapers, which you could you could get from their archives probably without having to buy a whole book. But I think that raises kind of interesting questions about representation, about, you know, what assumptions we make and about context and the the relationship between mediation and, and you know, let's say ordinary unmediated behaviour. So that's one that I think I would use if I was teaching students of that kind of age and stage. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, I normally think in terms of, you know, kind of classic articles and stuff, which I didn't, I don't think all of those would be accessible to um, A-level students. But I think one of the most important ways in which Lakoff has been transcended or superseded is really looking at the differences kind of among women and looking at gender in what would now be called an intersectional way. How mm. does it interact? with, you know, race, class, age, sexuality, but so other other dimensions of identity and power. And there are, I suppose, various things that could be read about that. So, you know, some of Devyani Sharma's work, for instance, on on the way that language use has changed in communities like Southall, where, you know, There was one set of differences between men and women in the kind of migrant generation and a a different, in fact, very interestingly reversed set of differences Mm. between, you know, sort of second, third generation 
Punjabi speakers in in Punjabi and English bilinguals in Southall. So, but that that's probably a bit hard for A level students to read. But it's the kind of thing that that you know teachers could perhaps seek out and know something more about. Yeah, so I think I think mediation is a is a good point to pursue. I think intersectionality and the interactions between different dimensions of identity is a good thing to pursue. The editorial note at the bottom of the original version of Language of Women's Place said that there ought to be more research on men. And I guess that's a good idea too. It shouldn't just be women whose language is under scrutiny. And yeah, I think various people have written on men's language in in various ways. I mean, you could do that from a mediated perspective too. So there would, there was a book on about men's magazines, though that's probably a bit out of date by now. But people like you know Robert Lawson have written about the performance of masculinity, and there there are also loads of articles. So you could pick the angle that interests you, like sport or video gaming there's a whole literature now on video gaming on gaming i should call it yeah. you, you wrote something for the english and media center back in 2015 where you suggested some research and reading recommended reading for teachers there and i think you mentioned paul baker in there as well didn't you sex texts yeah that's that's kind of a a good all-purpose sort of intro text for language and gender i'm sure mm. it's done very well but I guess it's getting a bit old now. I mean, this is a this is sort of a rapidly changing theme. Yeah. And I think many 18-year-old students will be interested in things that it couldn't really cover because they didn't exist or hadn't become visible in the same way. And those would range from the sorts of things that I'm doing in language sexism and misogyny. So for instance, I look at, you know, Andrew Tate and the incel mm. stuff. And so that the new yeah. online misogyny, you know, I, I find that that among undergraduate students, that's quite a strong concern among girls in particular. Yeah. And then there's also, of course, a lot of interest in the way that the contours of gender have shifted and there are sort of new possibilities for identity. Yeah. So they're interested in, you know, trans and non-binary identities. How are those signaled in language? And there is more research on that now. And I guess, you know, no textbook that was published when was... Baker's textbook published like 2008 or something yes, like that mm. would it would capture either of those developments mm. I mean one reason why I decided to write a book on the representation side so not on the how do men and women speak mm. side yeah. at all was that it seemed to me that this has been a decade of rapid and in mm. some ways quite concerning change mm. and that it was time somebody took that on because you know it a lot of the stuff that was available to teach with was really not doing it for me anymore. Yeah. Or or I found for for students, you know, they were they did want to talk about things that were happening now that they saw as either exciting or hideous. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Your I think it's your last blog it was about AI, wasn't it? And about, yes. about chatbots and sex bots and grief bots and kind of <laughs> you know linguistic and, and companions and that you can you can design your own AI companion yeah. and fall in love with it. And yeah, I mean talk yeah. about concerning. Yeah, exactly. I mean that that's I also do talk about AI in, in the book and, and the way that it's building, you know, shocking amounts of bias. Mm. 
things that we use every day. I mean, I yeah. really, I mean, people are on it. There are researchers working on it and people within the industry who want to do something about it. But because the industry is basically controlled by these, you know, multimillionaire tech bro capitalists, it's hard to think that anything very good will immediately happen. And it is kind of horrifying when you think about, you know, things like the app where you can take a headshot and get it to complete it with a body. And if it's a female body, you'll get, you'll get, you know, a bikini. <laughs> if it's a male body, you'll get a suit. Yeah. I mean, they are essentially, I mean, these biases precede AI, but because they crunch their way through such enormous amounts of data, and because the data has these biases, it actually ends up amplifying them. No, it's a it's a brave new or hideous new world out of various things. And yeah, I I expect to see work on language and gender kind of getting to grips with them. But I do feel that on the negative side, it really isn't. That there is a lot of work on kind of new configurations of identity. But there's not a lot of work except the kind of corpus studies of incels, which is really trying to look at the the new iterations of prejudice and discrimination, which are being made possible in some cases by new technology or are being amplified by it. I mean, you couldn't mm. there were there were, you know, influential misogynists before Andrew Tate, mm. but they couldn't game an algorithm to get billions of followers around mm -hmm. the world so it is it is worrying and, and you know needs to be discussed and the language kind of analyzed and there's so much evidence that some things are really getting worse so Alessia Tranquese who is in who works at the University of Portsmouth I think is a corpus linguist she has recently brought out a study of 12 years of rape reporting in the British press and that is fairly horrifying because she finds that essentially disbelief, language that in, that suggests and encourages disbelief of, of people who report rape has become much more frequent mm. over time, which you mm. would expect, you know, you might expect the opposite to be true, but it isn't true. And she traces this, interestingly, to the, you know, the 2010s when most newspapers pivoted to containing to go they, they went online and they devoted much more of their coverage to celebrities so the tone for this was set by celebrity cases where mm. and particularly um sports celebrities where a footballer say was accused mm. of rape yeah. and mm. the newspapers seem to have generalized a formula that they used because partly because they were afraid of being sued by mm -hmm. a sporting celebrity with very deep pockets and good lawyers, but also partly because they didn't want to alienate the fans of somebody like, you know, Neymar or Robinho. So sportsman rapes, which were a sort of minor category before, became this kind of template where and for reporting which is really, really on the guy's side. You know, it's it's not neutral. It's not like we don't believe anybody or mm -hmm. we don't disbelieve anybody. It's like, you know, the alleged victim alleges which he strenuously denies right. or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, those, and those kinds of things, I think, could, could perhaps be covered in the classroom. I mean, it's a bit of a tough subject, but... Yeah, um, yeah. But it is of interest and you have got, you, mm. you know, anyone could pick up a newspaper.
Yeah, the A the A level is quite a broad church as well, as far as coverage goes. There's definitely other bits of the course that aren't the gender bit that cover things like discourses more broadly that aren't gender specific, but can certainly include it in there. And there's definitely there's definitely been language investigation students have done mm. looked at mm -hmm. those kind of things, and I think that's yeah they they often want to look at real world kind of applications of this, mm. and it's interesting. Yeah, and rightly so. Yeah, 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 very much. I mean, it's a great course for that. It's interesting that that's the, one of the strands that you've kind of picked up on from going back to Lakoff is that sort of focus on representation of women. Mm. I suppose the other the other angle maybe just sort of to ask you about is we're kind of thinking at the moment about the sort of future of the A-level and how we should deal with all of the kind of ways in which, you know, you've talked about intersectionality, different identities, you know, maybe sort of challenging the binary between sort of male, female identities as well. That's definitely become much more of a sort of talking point and, you know, place for research. Is is there actually a place for really calling it language and gender? Or should we really be, really be looking at this as part of, say, language and identity, maybe or more broadly to reflect that intersectionality? I am kind of a bit over the word identity. <laughs> I think it's such a an umbrella term now and has taken so much i mean i i am interested in social structures yeah. i'm interested in you know institutions that that produce language and that police language and i don't think that that necessarily is subsumed into identity i mean i think of course i think we can talk about language and identity but i do think identities become a bit of a catch-all term for all yeah. kinds of things which might not be it and also has sort of eaten up language and gender in, in a way that actually my new book is intended to be a bit of a corrective to. So, for instance, if you open a very recent, the most recent textbook, intro textbook on language and gender I can think of, which is Scott Kiesling's. And, you know, I've known Scott for a million years. I knew him when he was a PhD student. You know, he's done some interesting research. But if you if you look up the word sexism in the in the index, you won't find it. It's not there. Mm -hmm. The book is literally all about identity and very much as a kind of self-chosen thing. And I mean, opinions differ. It's it's also an interesting debate perhaps to have with students. But that is not the view of language and gender or language and sexuality that I necessarily mm -hmm. favor to that extent. I, I do think there's more to it. Although I am also for intersectionality when we are talking about both identity and power. Mm. Um, yeah. Intersectionality is about the way, not only about the way you identify, but the way you're positioned. Yeah. And I think that power angle is something students are really interested in looking at, isn't it? It's it's why it's such a great topic as well. It's it's got it's got all it's got all, it's got everything. It's got all the things we want. It's got it's got power structures. It's got the way that power is enacted in really minute detail in literally one-to-one -one situations that they will experience themselves. You know, mm. it's got huge abstract conceptual things about institutional power, which they also really enjoy and really get behind. But also they can think about their conversation they've just had, you know, with their mate on the phone and mm -hmm. how it applies really distinctly to that it's what it's why it's why it's such a great subject all around yeah no it, it never surprises me that I mean they, in my career I guess I, it did go through a doldrum when when I first went to Oxford students were not interested in it at all they were like hmm, yeah 
gender well you know that's what my mum was interested in (laughs) (laughs) but that passed and then there was this kind of resurgence of it and I agree it's a place from which you can explore many different issues and and it's relevant to students lives I mean so are other types of identity but I think there's something very immediate about them the man woman or other girl boy or other thing because you know it's been part of your life since you were a small child Mm, yeah I didn't ask you at all about Deborah Tannen I don't know if you want to (laughs) do is it we could we could cut this bit out. Okay. No, I've, not only have I met Deborah Tannen on a number of occasions, and she's she's always been very very nice to me. But I've also been mistakenly invited to talk on the oh on the no that I was her. <laughs> Hang on, you're not Deborah Tannen. I thought <laughs> you, I thought you were behind the difference I a, model. I am <laughs> I am phonologically only only slightly distinguishable from her. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what confused people. How could there be two people called Deborah something ah something mm, who who work on in the same field but are unfortunately completely different matters? I mean, it's actually interesting to me that so where Deborah Tannen Deborah Tannen's work is obviously very very different from Lakoff's. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it comes a lot later. Deborah Tallon didn't make her name as an expert on language and gender. She was a a discourse analyst who was very interested in, particularly interested in kind of cultural differences in the interactional sociolinguistics paradigm. And she somehow came to the topic of gender and, you know, put forward this sort of difference theory that it was that men and women were like two different cultures mm. and she didn't have really the focus on power discrimination and so on, which Lakoff had. And I think that's a sign mm. that by the time it came out, which was 1990, yeah, just don't understand feminism. Second wave feminism was very much on the fade. We were moving into that doldrum period of post-feminism or, or whatever, where, and where that did get taken up, though, which I find interesting, is in the also emergent field of evolutionary psychology. Yes. So if you read evolutionary psychology on on sex and language, um, that's always what they cite, apparently not understanding that it actually was a popular book. Mm. It is not a work of scholarship underpinned by enormous amounts of research so in that respect it's kind of like language in one's place it's a kind of provocation mm. and obviously a provocation towards you know a counter provocation to lake office it's like we talk all the time about power but what if it's just misunderstanding yeah yeah but it, but evolutionary psychologists took it up in a quite different way as a sort of thing you could work back from and and kind of theorize that these cultural differences between supposed cultural differences between men and women were in fact products of the conditions that obtained when the human genetic blueprint was being set back in the Pleistocene era when we roamed the savannas of Africa as hunter-gatherers and you know, I mean, some I have talked to some of these guys, Robin Dunbar, Simon Baron Cohen. I used to go yes. to science festivals to have debates with them. Yes. And just say to, you know, it, the stuff that you write on the basis of Deborah Tannen is just embarrassing. It's just embarrassing. 
um, because you don't seem to understand what the sociolinguistic findings actually mean. You know, so they, they would also interpret things like the classic variation pattern where women in a stable situation speak more standard language than men. And they, oh, that's because women need to marry up. Yes, which is yeah. a, a very favourite um, <laughs> trope of Andrew Tate's as well. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, that's yeah. echoed in Hypergamy. that. Yeah. And, and, you know, I would say to Simon Baron-Cohen or, or whoever, look, do you not understand that, that, that this is a finding specifically about post-industrial and post-industrial stratified societies where people get educated? It cannot possibly have applied to you know, early humans on the African savanna. Yeah. It's just complete nonsense. And, and you know, it, they were delving, evolutionary psychologists do have a tendency to delve into the literature of fields they don't know anything about because they're, they're, theirs is a sort of theory of everything. It's a theory of human nature. And, you know, so there's a lot of that. And people think, well, language, I speak a language. Yes. What do I need to know to <laughs> <Yeah>. interpret this? <laughs> That's why you also get all these papers by economists on how people save more if their language doesn't have a future tense. Yes, and... I remember reading that one. Just <laughs> and it nonsense. turns out that they don't actually know what a tense yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's a constant irritant, but also in some cases just an embarrassment. So Robin Dunbar had a theory that dialects change to stop freeloaders becoming part of the group, also on the African savannah. Right. But his timeline for this would suggest that you wouldn't be able to understand your own grandparents, which... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Plausible. I was at a family event yesterday, and there's certainly people I really have done that. So yeah, so there there has been a resurgence, not in linguistics but elsewhere, of kind mm. of biologistic explanations of gender differences in language. And for that, people you know people have gone back to Deborah Tannen rather than to Lakoff, mm. presumably because that that whole issue of politics and social roles and so on sure. is less noticeable in Deborah Tannen. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of, I mean, thinking about sort of, you know, the, the the pattern that students often take with the A-level and how teachers often teach it is like through the th sort of 3D model with deficit, dominance, difference. And mm. you sort of, diff you know, the difference between difference and dominance is power's just got out of the window. There's It's all about cultural, social and I guess, as you're saying, the sort of evolutionary um, strand to that is also kind of biological, isn't it? Was it John Locke as well who wrote? Was it oh, my God, yes. What a dreadful book that is. <laughs> Jewels and duets. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's just absolute nonsense. So women, women, you know, have never been great public speakers. I mean, does he not know that the law prohibited them from speaking in most public settings yeah. until about, you know, 18? You just feel... Yeah, a lot of special pleading there. I mean, I think I might have been to some extent responsible for the triangle deficit, dominance and difference, you know, and it, it sort of explains something about the way a particular phase of intellectual activity went. Mm. But, you know, the, the idea that you would sort of see it as, well, you could see the, the evidence like this or like that or like, the, no, it's a... It's a history of kind of ideas rather yeah. than a history of what actually was the case. Mm. But there we are, you know, you don't control what happens to your ideas once they get <laughs> the, the price you pay for them getting into the public domain is that people will simplify and misinterpret them.
Mm. A great way to finish it off. <laughs> so we have established you are not Deborah Tannen. We've established <laughs> Robin Lakoff, not Lakoff, and that Robin Lakoff is a woman because lots of students talk about her as a man and right. Yes, yeah. exactly. Well, they they, you can't be surprised by that because Robin in England is a yeah is mm. more of a man's name mm-hmm. even now, isn't it? No, thank you very much. That's brilliant. Yeah, thank you. You're very welcome. I look forward to seeing what the hell you make out of that. <laughs> thank you. No, <laughs> I'll say. enjoyed ourselves. Okay.